could turn in your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 11. This morning's scripture portion begins at Genesis 11:27 and goes through Genesis 12, verse 9. As we begin this morning, I have a a picture on the screen for us. In the Black Hills of South Dakota, you might recognize this monument, majestic figures carved in granite of George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln, and Theodore Roosevelt. These faces tell the story of the birth, growth, and development of our country. But why were these four presidents chosen? According to the National Park Service, the artist Gutzon Borglum selected these four presidents because, quote, they represented the most important events in the history of the United States. As majestic as these men are, and certainly the, the work of art that this represents, we know from our study of history that they are far from perfect. Yet, in spite of their flaws, we honor them with a giant monument such as this. We honor them as fathers of the nation or patriarchs. Why do we do this? How is it that we can erect a monument to such flawed individuals? Well, there are many reasons, and it could make a sermon all by itself. But one of the reasons, maybe one of the most important reasons in my mind, is that we believe We have believed, and we continue to believe, that God works through flawed and sinful men to accomplish his sovereign purposes in our lives. Along these lines, and starting this morning and going through Christmas, we're going to be looking at the lives of four patriarchs, not on Mount Rushmore, but in the book of Genesis. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. We can think of this as the Mount Rushmore of the first book of the Bible. The first name in that list, Abraham, literally is the great patriarch. It's what his name means. But he is also the biological father of the others in that list. And in the book of Romans, as we'll see in just a few minutes, the Apostle Paul calls him the father of all who believe. To quote another great father of the faith, the French reformer John Calvin, The Holy Spirit, here's a quote, the Holy Spirit has in the person of Abraham set before us a mirror or a living image to show us how we are to be governed if we are to reach the kingdom of heaven. What Calvin is saying and what we need to hear at the outset is that one of the reasons that Abraham is in the Bible is to show you how to get to heaven. And what's beautiful about the scriptures is that we learn about how to get to heaven from Abraham, not by Abraham telling us in so many words, here's how you get to heaven, but by reading his story, by, by entering into the story of Abraham, by seeing ourselves in the story of Abraham. What would I do in that situation? How might I react in that situation? If Abraham is indeed the father of all who believes, 
then we who are believers have much to learn about faith from Abraham. And likewise, if you're not a believer, or if you're considering faith, then we have in Abraham a picture. Calvin says it's a living picture, and I think he's right. A picture of what it looks like for someone to come to faith. Abraham will show you how you can come to faith in God. So let's begin then by giving our attention to God's holy word as we begin to look at and learn from our father Abraham. As I said, my reading begins in verse 27 of chapter 11. And in this portion of the reading, I'm going to stop at Genesis 12, verse 3. The rest of the reading, verses 4 through 9, I'm going to pick up a little bit later on in my message. This is the eternal word of God, Genesis 11, 27. These are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you And make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this picture of faith, a living image, as it were. We thank you that we will learn not only about Abraham's virtues, but also of his failures and struggles. And yet in him, we find ourselves meeting the father of all who believe. And yes, Lord, we do admit that we struggle with faith. We struggle with walking by faith, with persevering in faith, with dealing with the challenges of the modern world and the enemies and hostility around us, all hostile to faith. So we pray that in Abraham we would learn not only how to better live and walk and and act by faith, but but perhaps for some of us, Lord, it might be the first steps of faith altogether. We might learn to have faith for the first time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So to begin with, I'd like to just make sure we know what's happening because there's a lot packed into these few verses. And a quick reading might cause you to miss some of the interesting details that we need to understand in order to benefit from Abraham. 
So at this point in the story, you'll notice that Abraham is actually called Abram. Now, Abraham and Abram are related names, and actually Abram's name changes later in the story due to the grace of God being shown to him in his life. I'm going to refer to him just as Abraham, though, because if I continually switch back and forth, my tongue is going to get stuck to the roof of my mouth. So Abraham, who is called Abram at this point, lives in a land called Babylon. Now, the story doesn't tell us this. It says that his home country is Ur of the Chaldeans. But Chaldea is simply another name for that other country that we know as Babylon. Genesis 11.28 calls this the land of his kindred. Well, kindred just means family, his aunts and uncles, his cousins, his second cousins, his friends, his school-age friends, his adult friends, the neighbors that he lives with. These are his people. Abraham is settled in this land. His father and mother were settled in this land, and likely his grandparents and the parents above them as well. This is where he's from. He never knew any other land and had no other plans, at least that we can tell in the story, of ever leaving. And this particular place was, a, was quite a prosperous place in the ancient world. This was not a backwater country. It would be more like uh, Chicago or Atlanta or Philadelphia or New York. It's a major, major metropolitan city in the ancient world. So Abraham, in this place, would have been used to many comforts that would have been afforded to those who lived in an urban center. And he has at least two brothers. Now, there may have been more, but the two that are listed, because biblical genealogies sometimes only give us part of the story of a family, the two that are listed are, if we look in verse 27, Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. So three boys of Terah are listed. One of the boys, Haran, is the father of Lot, who will show up again in our story in a little bit. So Abraham's brother, Haran, was the father of Lot. That makes Abraham the uncle and Lot the nephew, Uncle Abe. Sadly, though, one of Abraham's brothers, and I don't know if any of you have lost a sibling, but one of Abraham's brothers died at a young age. And I say young age because the ages here are longer than we're used to. They're about twice as long, actually, as the, the lifespan that we are accustomed to, at least in the modern times. Scientists and theologians have talked about the reasons for the extended ages in the Bible, and that's a topic for another time. If you're interested, we can talk about it. But I say it's a young age because the brother, the son, dies in the presence of his father, which is to say the father, Terah, witnessed the death of his son. Now, that's a special loss. If you've lost a sibling, it's one thing. If your parents have passed on, it's something in the natural order of things, and it's somewhat expected, I should say. But to lose a sibling in the presence of your parents, what a tragedy. What a hardship. I'm guessing Terah and Abram and the other brother probably never fully got over that loss. In any event, two brothers that we know of remain, and they each have wives. Abraham's wife is named Sarah, but again, there's a name change. At this point, her name is Sarai. Sarah and Sarai are, 
are related. Sarah also gets a new name later in the story. We're not going to get to it this morning when God reveals his grace to Sarah in a special way. And I'm just going to refer to her as Sarah. We need to also know a little bit of what's happened in Genesis 1 through 11 in order to appreciate this story. So Genesis is the first book of the Bible. It literally means beginnings. And so in this book, we have the creation of the world. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the first line of this book. And then, of course, after God creates the world, he creates our first parents who were named Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve were situated in the garden of God's paradise, which was like a holy temple, called to do work in the presence of God in a full creaturely friendship with God. If you know the story, they didn't continue in friendship with God and they were cursed by being expelled from God's presence because nothing unholy can remain in the presence of God. Well, at that point in Genesis 3, this story takes a sharp downturn. And in Genesis 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10, we see repeated manifestations of the curse on mankind and our foolish choice to turn from the presence of God, to break our friendship with God, and to do things our way instead of God's way, to seek our glory instead of God's glory. And God deals with this in a decisive way in the middle of, our, of this section in around Genesis 6, 7, and 8 by sending the flood. And in the flood, he's determined to, to judge in a righteous anger all of mankind for our sin. But one family, the family of Noah, is singled out for God's grace and blessing. So we see in Noah a sense a fresh start. But when the waters of the flood subsides and Noah's sons go off and populate the world, we see the problem continuing. Mankind still is seeking himself. We're still building a, a name for ourselves, building monuments to ourselves, to our own presidents, rather than monuments to God. And so that's where we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 11. Genesis 11.4 says that mankind in, the, in a place called Babel was seeking to make a name for ourselves. And this is meant to be in direct competition with the creation mandate, which is in the, to the glory of God, by the name of God, to fill the earth, not with our own image, but with the image of God. And so not with floodwaters this time, but once again, God intervenes and he zeroes in on one family, and in fact, in this case, one person, a man and his wife. And Abraham and Sarah are called to make a break, to leave. They're to leave this land of prosperity, this land of blessing, a land of, of riches and relatives uh, calm and settled in order that God would multiply God's name through Abraham. That God would make God's name great through Abraham. Genesis 12, 2. 
and I will make of you a great nation. But notice it's I will make of you a great nation. What was happening in Babel is that mankind in our sinful inclinations, we were making of ourselves a great nation. Nations, we were really proud of ourselves. We were making great architectural monuments that reached to the sky and we were worshiping gods of our own making and following our own desires and doing our own thing. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be passive. You will become a blessing because of me. The blessing that the world seeks has to come from God. That's the message through Abraham. But we have some problems with this command in Genesis 12. The first problem is that we learned in Genesis 30 that Abraham's wife, Sarah, is barren. She has no child. That's Genesis 11.30. How can Abraham become a great nation, be the father of a multitude of peoples, if his wife is barren and unable to conceive, if her womb is closed and she has no children? That's problem number one. Problem number two is that the call of God will require Abraham, as I said earlier, to make a break, to leave his father's house in the land of his kindred. Genesis 12.1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Why is this a problem? Well, we're living in a society where making a clean break from your family and traveling as a husband and a wife to a land that God will show you is not exactly the most practical program for safety and success. I mean, today, it's hard enough if you have to move, say, from Philly to D.C. or from D.C. to New York or even from New York to Cleveland or Chicago. That's a big transition. I mean, you've got to get a new cable provider. You've got to hook up your electric. You know, you've got to sell your house, get a new mortgage. Interest rates might be a little high. You know, rent a moving van. I mean, this is tough, relocating these days. So not only did God require a clean break from Abraham, from all that was, and these are words that I chose on purpose, familiar, comfortable, and settled. Familiar sounds like family. Comfortable sounds like no suffering. And settled sounds like no change. So God required a clean break from all of this. But it's, it's, the problem is bigger because he says, go to a land that I will show you. Future tense. Hop in the car, start driving, get on New Jersey State Route 55, And the GPS coordinates will be dropped into your phone at around the 4255 merge. A third problem with this command of the Lord is that once Abram gets to the land of Canaan, the land of promise, the land of promise, as we're going to see, he's forced to wander as a nomad and a vagabond his entire life. The land that was promised to him, he never once gets to settle in. 
but lives in tents for his whole existence. What kind of promise is that? So if God really does plan to bless the world through Abraham, it would seem that God's plan is a little lacking in the details and a little short on the provision. So that's the story. There's a lot more to the story, and we're going to see some wonderful textures in the coming chapters of Genesis. Actually, Genesis 12 through 26 deal with the life of Abraham and all of its variations. So we're going to spend the next few weeks on Abraham, but that's the story for today. That's the, the story in a nutshell. What can we learn from this? Now that we know the story, what are the lessons that God wants you to learn from the story? What does God want you to learn about Abraham's faith? I'm noticing three qualities of Abraham's faith that are worth not only noticing, but imitating. Three qualities of Abraham's faith. The first quality is that Abraham has family faith. By this I mean Abraham's faith makes sense and is lived out in the context of his family. Now that's easier said than done. In the New Testament, Jesus would say, a prophet is honored everywhere he goes. His name is on signboards, billboards, placards, except in his own home country. How do we see Abraham's family faith in this passage? I'm going to focus, there's several layers to it, but I'm going to focus just on Abraham's relationship with his father. This is a series on patriarchs, and so I, I think it's relevant for us to think about fathers in particular. What is Abraham's relationship like with his dad, Terah? Well, we know that Abraham is called to go to this land when he's living in Babylon, Ur of the Chaldees. Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7, verse 2, tells us this. What this means is, while he was living in his hometown, remember, familiar, comfortable, and settled, that's when God calls him. God does not call Terah. God calls Abraham. And so while he's in this familiar, comfortable, settled setting, he's called to leave everything that is familiar to him, family, comfortable, and settled. And only by the word of God did he have assurance that he was doing the right thing. So dads, if your son tells you something like this, that God told him to do something like this, what is your reaction? Now, if you just have a small boy, you, you just pat him on the head. If he's 15, you argue with him, usually a long lecture. If he's 25, you just shake your head and say, you're crazy, but you're on your own. Let me know how it goes. But what Tara does is Tara goes with him. Now, this is remarkable because we know from Joshua 24, and there's a slide for this text. We know from Joshua 24 that Terah was an idolater. He worshipped idols. In fact, the word Terah in the ancient language, borrowed into Hebrew, means moon. 
Terra and his ancestors worshipped the planets. They were pagans. Paganos means you worship the creation. And so the idolater, pagan, moon-worshipping Terra, and all the traditions that go with that, all the what they do on Sundays, what they do on Saturdays, their weekly rituals, their quarterly rituals, their holidays, all of that. Terra actually listens to Abraham at some level. And the son becomes the father to the father. The son becomes the teacher to the teacher. 1 Peter 1.18 says that God in saving us, delivers us from the vain or empty traditions of our fathers. This is exactly what God did with Abram. What's remarkable, though, is that Abraham's father is following Abraham out of his familiar, out of his settled, and out of his comfortable country. And his brothers come with him. This is a surprising element of the story. And so we can, in a way, we can praise Terah's family faith. That the family faith of Abraham, because of the way that he carries himself, because of what he's done, somehow infects or, or gets into or inspires, at least inspires, his father Terah. But something happens midway. We're still talking about family faith now, learning from Abraham's family faith. So they go forth, in verse 31, from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. And then there's the word, but. But, when they came to Haran, they settled there. Now there's a, I think I have a slide here of the picture. So this is a shape like a, an upside down U. And Haran is at the, at the top of the U. Ur, where they started, is on, on our bottom right here, rights and lefts, and they're going all the way down to Canaan on the other side. Halfway. When they got halfway, they settled there. Now, Calvin and his comments on this think that the reason that they stopped in Haran is that Terah died, or Terah's health that Terah was on the verge of death, that he was an old man, and he was, and he did wind up dying here. But other commentators observed that the word settled means Terah was done. Terah had been inspired by Abram's faith in the beginning, but now he's thinking, you know what? No. Haran is fine. Haran is a fine place to settle and to answer the call of God. Story doesn't tell us, we can speculate. In any case, Terah dies in Haran, but Abraham remembers the call of God and continues his journey. Or, perhaps verses 1, 2, and 3 of Genesis 12 is a re repeat or a repetition of the call of God because Abraham himself was tempted to settle in Haran which I think also may be a possibility. That's Jim Boyce's view. So there's some room for exploring this text and, and kind of 
getting into the crevices and just thinking about what was happening here. I definitely identify with that second idea that the call of God seemed good in the beginning, but you get halfway through the race, it's like, what was I thinking signing up for this 10K? Are you kidding me? (laughs) Three miles? No human being should run more than three miles. This is family faith. It's important for us as fathers in two ways, I think. One, are you dads paying attention to your children? Are you listening? Do you know that God loves to speak through little children? If you're not paying attention, you'll be likely to dismiss them because you have your traditions, you have your gods, may I say it. You have your practices. You are comfortable. That's the goal of being a dad, as far as I'm, that's in my dad handbook, number one. Make sure you're comfortable, make sure everything's familiar, and get settled. And if the, if the wife and the kids aren't interested in that, too bad. That's my goal for me. So when God speaks to us, he'll speak to us through our children so often and we are, we are hardwired because of our own sin nature and our own idolatry to ignore them. And we have good reasons, too. But it also isn't unusual for the faith of fathers, having listened to our children, to lose steam or collapse toward the end of our lives. And just thinking biologically, at least according to modern age spans, this starts around the age of 45 to 55, where a man's faith can easily begin to lose steam. And the call of God, which was so clear in his younger days, becomes blurry with the busyness of life, the difficulty of work, the pace, trials, suffering. You know, men, we have, we have memories. We remember what it was like to be burned. We remember what it was like for someone to have broken the contract or to take an advantage of us or whatever it may be. We don't forget. We may not say much, but we're not, we're not going to be sort of once bitten, twice shy, fool me once, fool me twice kind of a thing. So Terah here is a warning, and Abraham is a godly example of how midway through our journey, we need to find the call of God again and not let that call diminish because of the cares of this world. As 1 John says, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now I have in my uh, notes here a couple of families that I'm extremely proud of. I have seen a young man, Aaron, come to church. And his mother comes with him. I'm extremely proud of that family. I've seen another young man, Jonathan, come to church and he's brought his sister and his older brother. I am proud of that young man. His father has come too. And in the case of one of our seminarians, Brandon, his grandmother comes to church. 
She's invited me to her house. I'm extremely proud of that young man. We have men like Abraham, in other words, in our midst. Have you noticed them? Are you paying attention to the Abrahams amongst us? Or are you so busy as grown-ups, because all these people are under the age of 25 or so, Are you so busy doing your church thing that you haven't noticed that we have warriors of faith, family faith, who are walking down the aisle? I think that you need to leave Ur of the Chaldees, even if you never put up your house for sale. Because the world can suck us in, can it? And we forget what church is all about. My second lesson, not only does Abraham have family faith, I think the second characteristic that we can learn is that he has believing faith or trusting faith. You can see this in two ways. First, his wife is barren. And second, as I mentioned earlier, God has not told Abraham where to go. On the barrenness of his wife, I want to point to a passage in the book of Romans. You can turn there if you want. It's Romans 4.16, but I also have it on the screen. Go back one. Oh, yeah, that's, that's where we start. This is Romans 4.16. It's a long passage. That's why I wanted to to have you in front of your eyes. So either look it up or or read it on the screen. This is why it depends on faith in order that the promise, this is, we have a long discussion about Abraham, by the way. The entirety of Romans 4 is about one person, Abraham. So this is why it depends on faith in order that the promise, the promise that God gave to Abraham, may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God, in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead. This is the phrase I really want to stress. God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist There was no womb for Abraham's son. It was dead. And God gives life to the dead. But Abraham had to believe in his faith. His faith couldn't just be going through the motions. It it had to be a real act of living, trusting, hanging on for dear life, believing faith. This is what I'm trying to get at. Continuing the passage. In hope... He believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body. So it wasn't just Sarah's womb that was dead. Abram had dried up as well. How does this work, God? I've been around enough to know that this doesn't work since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, 
No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in faith. That's what I'm saying. Trusting faith. Growing strong faith. He gave glory to God, not his own name, convinced that God was able to do what he had promised, hoping against hope itself. I like to illustrate this with the opposite. You must distrust yourself if you're going to trust God. You have to actively release your trust in your own plans, your own comfort, your own family, your own traditions. You have to actively let those go. You have to find a new way. The old way doesn't work anymore when you have believing faith. And the second part of this is he has to go to a place that God would show him. Abraham had to trust in God's power and plan, and he did not rashly put his plans in the place of God's. Perhaps Terah did. But there's a question. Why did God choose to do this? Like, why couldn't he have just made it easier on Abraham? (laughs) Here's the itinerary, you know. Here are the rest stops. Here are the things you're going to see along the way. It's going to be fun, Abraham. You and me, God and Abraham. We're going to go on a road trip. Come on, Abraham, it'll be okay. All right, you know. No, God says, trust me. Go to where I'm going, and I will bless you. I think God keeps Abraham in suspense to remind us that it is our tendency to not make a move until we know exactly what's going to happen, where we will go and what we will do when we get there. But that's not the way of Abraham, and that's not believing faith. God doesn't want us to make deals with him, to cut a bargain with God, but rather to depend on his wisdom and on his word. I wonder if you're struggling with some major life change right now because you're not willing to trust God for the next steps or for the last steps. The best course of action, as one pastor put it, is to picture yourself like a bird on a branch. Can you picture a bird on a branch? Ready to fly. Except you're leaving the branch not because you're afraid of some noise or a cat climbing up the the, the trunk of the tree. You're going to take flight when God says go. And you say, yes, Lord, I'm ready. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not unto your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. So he has family faith. He has trusting faith. And the third characteristic I want to look at is persevering faith. Now we're going to read the rest of our passage to learn about persevering faith in Genesis 12, 4 to 9. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. 
Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Persevering faith. Once he got into the land, he had to persevere in that while God spoke to him there, and he built an altar to the Lord there, and he worshiped there, he never was able to settle down there. He was a stranger in the land that God had promised him. Now I have a, a slide, I think, that shows the different places where Abraham lived. Does this look like somebody who's settled? Now, I'm sure he had a nice tent. This isn't like, you know, a pup tent or just a hammock. But he lived in tents his entire life. The land that God had promised him by God, Abraham was a stranger and a wanderer. So he had to persevere. He had to persevere in his faith. But why did Abraham persevere in his faith? It's because God persevered with Abraham. We're going to see in the coming weeks that Abraham is not a sterling believer. He's actually fairly messed up. But God persevered with Abraham, and that's why Abraham perseveres with God. God promised to always be a father to him. God promised to always be available to him, to always hear when Abraham called. God promised to always be a refuge to Abraham, even when he had no permanent shelter. So listen to this passage from Hebrews 11. Verses 8 and 10. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going, for he was looking forward to the city whose foundations and builder is God. You see, Abraham's perseverance meant he had to not focus on what was in front of him, but for his entire life had to trust by faith that there was a city that was being prepared for him. And even though Abraham's faith was not perfect, and what this ultimately means is that perseverance for Abraham points us to the son of Abraham. You see, there is someone else who came from Abraham who brings us the very faith that we need in Abraham. His name is Jesus. He's the one who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. David reminded me of this passage yesterday. He endured the cross, despising its shame. Jesus is the creator of the world. It wasn't just that God promised him a little scrap of the planet. Jesus made it. And he was treated not just like, an, like a stranger or a vagabond, but like a criminal. And in response, he did not revile but he set his eyes on his heavenly reward. In that sense, Abraham's faith is really drawn from the son of Abraham. The son is teaching the father once again. The son is greater than the father. In this case, Jesus is greater than Abraham. In the end, we see that Abraham really isn't that special. Although he's the father of all the faithful and he sounds like this really great guy, in fact, he was just a humdrum suburban idolater. 
whom God chose for no particular reason other than God wanted to use this regular guy to bless the world. Now that's amazing. That's a remarkable story. I shared this story with Pastor Mario. Some of you know him. And his observation was this. It's amazing how one of the messiest families in human history, the family of Abraham, is one of the messiest families in human history. And God, through the scriptures, is not ashamed to be identified as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now that's grace. The grace of God is he is not ashamed to be identified as your God. And those young men that I mentioned are regular guys. And yet God is not ashamed to be identified as their God or as your God. He is your God. You are a mess. Your life is a mess and you are not a trophy. You are not like on the top shelf, first in line, first pick for the softball team. You're like, you're, you're the rejects. And God says, I chose you and I am going to work through you and your children and your children and you and I will bless the world through you if you will hear my call and follow me with the faith of Abraham. As we apply this story to our lives, number one, you're not perfect. You need Jesus. Will you acknowledge today that like every other patriarch, and especially like Abraham, you are far from God's ideal. You and your family are a mess. You are not for the picture of South Jersey Quarterly, the family of the month or the year. Jesus said that Abraham saw my day and was glad. What that means is that in some dim fashion, Abraham knew that what made him special was the grace and promise of God through a coming Savior. What about you? A second application is this. God has called you. Will you listen and obey? What God has spoken to Abraham comes to you. You are one of the persons through whom God wishes to bring blessing, his blessing, to the world. Where has he called you to go? What has he called you to do? No one will be called like Abraham. There's only one father of all believers, and that's him. But each one of us, in some small way, have a call of God on our lives. Now, you don't necessarily need to leave New Jersey. Now, Jersey is not the Ur of the Chaldeans. This is not like, you know, the lavish place of luxury that I tried to describe in ancient Babylon. Actually, I think some of you need to stop talking about leaving New Jersey. Was that too specific of an application? <laughs> what if God has called you to be right here in this place? Stop fussing and fretting about all the things that are supposedly wrong with our state and be a blessing and live to the glory of God here. But some of you might be called to leave South Jersey and go somewhere else. It might entail bringing your parents with you far, far from home. If he has called you, have you been delinquent in following that call? dithering about and making other plans. It's not too late because Abraham was quite old when he finally went. 
Third, God has made promises. Do not lose heart. If you know that God has called you to do something, and you're waiting on his word, and you're losing steam, you're in Haran, you're halfway there, and it's like, God, you said you were going to do something. Consider these prayer requests that Christians ask of God. God, will you please save my children? When will you act? God, will you please bring salvation to my husband or my wife, or at least cause him or her to be less hostile to our faith? God, will you please bring me a girlfriend or a boyfriend? Will you please repair my marriage? God, will you please give me victory in some area of besetting sin? Help me to stop going back to the trough all the time like a pig. When will this end? God, will you please give me the job that I'll finally enjoy, that I can finally make an income? Will you please, God, I've asked, give me recovery from this chronic disease. I can never sleep without pain. Please, God. Well, friends, God's delay doesn't mean God's denial. As we speak, he is plotting. He is planning. He is arranging things behind the scenes, behind the curtain, for your blessing. It's not going to come the way you think, but it is going to be far above and beyond anything you would have asked or imagined according to the promises and the riches which are yours in Christ. Amen. Father, the faith of Abraham is, is needed in our day. It's needed in this preacher, and it's needed in our church. How I ask that you would do a mighty work and cause us to be so compelled and controlled by your promise that no earthly desire could contain or restrain us we would give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord, whatever that may be in our vocation, be it secular or sacred. And would you please, Lord, would you please fulfill your promise that you have made in Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www mercyhillnj.org We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the church house located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro off of Harvard Avenue adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.